This morning's gospel lesson picks up where we left off last week with John's recounting of Jesus' post-resurrection appearances. I'm in the 21st chapter of the Gospel of John, and I'll begin with the third verse. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just after daybreak, Jesus stood on the beach, but the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, you have no fish, have you? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net to the other side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because there were so many fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved said, Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on some clothes, for he was naked, and jumped into the sea. But the other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far off from land, only about a hundred yards. When they had gone ashore, they saw a charcoal fire and there was fish on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore, full of large fish, 153 of them. And though there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now, none of the disciples dared to ask him, who are you? Because they knew that it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus appeared to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, Lord, yes, you know I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my lambs. A second time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter felt hurt because Jesus said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. This too is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. It's the stuff of modern legend, how Lin-Manuel Miranda was heading out on vacation after his first Broadway musical when he realized he hadn't brought along any beach reading. So in the airport, he picked up this little number, the, uh, definitive, the definitive biography of Alexander Hamilton. Miranda says he wasn't 50 pages into it before realizing that this story had to be his next project. He started work, and every time he finished a song, he sent it to this Pulitzer Prize-winning biographer for approval. And so we now have a historian-vetted rap musical recounting one of our great sagas. Hamilton was born penniless in the Caribbean. His father deserted the family, his mother died, he survived a hurricane, and by the age of 14 was clerk of an international shipping company. Noting his potential, local folks took up a collection to send him to America for college. 
He arrived in New York City in 1776, quickly joining the revolution. A driven genius, he became George Washington's right-hand man, advising on strategy, ghostwriting documents attributed to Washington, and taking a military command at the Battle of Yorktown. Along the way, he fell in love with and married Eliza Schuyler, and they had a son, Philip. Hamilton became our first Secretary of the Treasury, a position from which he created the economic system that remains the foundation of capitalism. And he had an affair with a woman whose husband blackmailed him. Hamilton paid off this Mr. Reynolds and moved on, but years later, his political foes, including Thomas Jefferson and James Madison, started digging for dirt and uncovered the paper trail of those blackmail payments. Completely misinterpreting this, this discovery, they accused Hamilton of having used his cabinet post to engage in financial misdeeds. In a gasp-inducing move, Hamilton responded by writing and publishing the Reynolds pamphlet clearing his professional reputation by publicly explaining what he'd actually done. No documents survive to tell us Eliza's reaction, but their beloved Philip, 19 years old, hears someone disparage his father's tattered honor, challenges that man to a duel, and is killed. In the musical, the song that occurs at this point begins, there are moments that the words don't reach. There is a suffering too terrible to name. The first verse describes Alexander. His hair has gone gray. He is working through the unimaginable. Eventually, he addresses Eliza. If I could trade his life for mine, he'd be standing here right now and you would smile, and that would be enough. As Alexander seeks some way for them to move forward, the chorus observes, he is trying to do the unimaginable. The final verse begins, there are moments that the words don't reach. There is a grace too powerful to name. Eliza takes his hand, and the song ends declaring that by engaging in forgiveness and seeking to build a new life, they are going through the unimaginable. I find a similar pattern in today's texts. Unimaginable loss, unimaginable grappling for forgiveness, and the unimaginable grace of new purpose. Now, just in case it needs to be said, let me say right now that I do not equate Alexander Hamilton with St. Peter or St. Paul. I do not equate Eliza Hamilton with Jesus. In fact, I don't equate anything with Jesus. But unimaginable seems an apt word for the turnabouts explored in these two texts, and especially in their message of productive redemption. First, the Acts passage that Emma read. Saul, not yet named Paul, has just overseen the stoning death of Stephen. It's one of the first examples of someone being martyred for Christian faith. 
And now Saul is bearing down on Damascus, pursuing more followers of the way of Jesus. Suddenly a voice confronts Saul, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, and Saul is blinded, his unimaginable loss. For three days, and yes, that rings a bell, Saul has no food, no water, and no sight until God sends Ananias to heal and baptize him. Unimaginable. This deadly persecutor of Christians is forgiven by Christ, not in a lip service, there, there, don't worry about it kind of way, but in a life-transforming, you matter and are called to serve God kind of way. And Saul responds by proclaiming that Jesus is the Son of God. Unimaginable. And then there's our gospel lesson. Simon Peter announces, I'm going fishing. You can read into that any number of emotions or intentions, but one thing is plain. He is fleeing to his pre-Jesus life. Others come along, but they catch nothing until the risen Jesus senses their predicament and much as he once turned water into wine, he now turns the emptiness of their nets into an abundance of fish. The fishermen come ashore, and on the beach is a charcoal fire. Do you know the only other place in the entire Bible where you will find that term? It's in the Gospel of John, chapter 18. Simon Peter is sitting at a charcoal fire when he denies Jesus three times. Although the food is already cooking, the fish and the bread, and we know Jesus can make loaves and fishes go a long way, Jesus still asks the disciples to contribute some of their miraculous catch. And that catches my attention. Bring some of the fish you've caught. Participate in what I'm doing here. Peter obliges, and Jesus invites them all to breakfast. And y'all, none of the disciples has said a word to Jesus. It's like one of those awkward family gatherings where, because of unresolved tensions, nobody knows what to say. And so Jesus simply feeds his poor, dumbstruck friends once again. The text states this was now the third time that Jesus appeared to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. In other words, Peter has had two prior occasions to make things right with Jesus, but he has managed to dodge the elephant in the relationship until now. Jesus addresses him by name, asking, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Feed my lambs. And you wonder if Peter has this giddy moment of thinking, is that it? But again, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Tend my sheep. At this point, maybe Peter pokes that charcoal fire. And then a third time, once for each of the denials that haunt Peter. Three opportunities for the three-time denier to respond rightly. Simon, son of John, do you love me? Lord, you know everything, is what Peter says. What he doesn't say is, 
everything, including the fact that on the last night I saw you alive, on that awful night that I can't escape, that night when you were tortured, that night that will not leave my head, on the eve of your execution, you know that I denied even knowing you. That is their unimaginable loss. And yet now these two are sharing breakfast and talking together. You know that I love you. Feed my sheep. Unimaginable. This text has factored in my faith ever since a conversation during my internship in South Africa. Lynette, an exuberantly hospitable parishioner, was driving me out to her favorite tea room, tucked in an orchard high on a mountainside, insanely picturesque. And I asked the question that had been in my head for a while. I said, Lynette, why does this church talk so much about, well, Jesus? See, I was accustomed to a congregation that talked about God and God's mission and God's creation and God's priorities and God's grace, but was shy about talking about Jesus, skittish at the risk of personal salvation, taking priority over getting busy, being God's servants at work in this broken world. And Lynette offered a simple but profound reply, and here I wish that my South African accent was better. She said, Lee, when Peter and Jesus are talking at breakfast on the beach, what's the first thing Jesus says? He says, do you love me? And only after that does he say, feed my sheep and tend my lambs. Don't you hear it, Lee? First, you're to love Jesus, and then, you can't help but look for ways to help care for his world. Lynette and I were not driving to Damascus, but something like scales did fall from my eyes as I was granted a new view of faith. When we respond to the presence of God by loving Jesus, it leads us to participate in Jesus' ongoing mission. Now, just as Jesus didn't need Peter to help make breakfast, but still invited him to offer some fish, Jesus, God is not dependent upon our efforts, but cares about us so much with such unimaginable love as to invite us to contribute to the divine project of redeeming the world. Now, some of you may be somewhat like my home church, a little leery of all this talk of loving Jesus. And I get that, because if that is the limit of your faith, then it's sort of all about you, and that's not who we are. We are eager to get busy being God's servants at work in this broken world. Well, what Lynette helped me see is that loving Jesus is the best rationale, the strongest inspiration, the energy, the oxygen that empowers and undergirds whatever you do as a person seeking to follow Christ. Whatever action you take, whatever commitment you make, whatever gifts you give, whatever ways you open yourself to become an instrument for God to use. So what will that look like for you? 
Simon Peter was told to feed and to tend. Well, folks at Morningside do a lot of that, literally and metaphorically. Is that your call? We need you. Saul was totally remade into a preacher and teacher, a builder up of the body of Christ and one of its great servant leaders. Is your call somewhere in that mix? We need you for this congregation to flourish in the receiving and experiencing and giving of God's love. We need your participation. In a few minutes, we will joyfully welcome five new members, giving thanks that these friends in Christ have been brought to Morningside Presbyterian as the community where they receive and respond to God's love. And then, together, we will all encounter the unimaginable grace of that table, hosted by the one who redeemed even Peter's denial, redeemed even Saul's persecution, redeemed them and redeems us in life-transforming. You matter and are called to serve God ways. When welcomed by such unimaginable love. Imagine all the ways we can respond. Amen.